This is the Monday, May 23rd, 2016 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old towns of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. T minus 17 seconds and counting the body flap and speed breaker in launch position. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. We go for main engine start. We have main engine start and ignition and liftoff. Liftoff of STS-7 and America's first woman astronaut. And the shuttle has cleared the tower. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, we're going to travel back in time like the USS Enterprise crew did on so many Star Trek episodes by flying our spaceship around the sun at warp speed and whipping through the calendar into the past. Well, maybe not exactly, but we will meet a galactic pioneer and Star Trek fan, Sally Ride, the first U.S. woman to leave Mother Earth and demonstrate that the right stuff isn't embedded into the Y chromosome. Dr. Ride wasn't aboard the space shuttle as a token or publicity stunt either. As President Reagan told the physicist of her mission aboard the space shuttle Challenger, somebody said that sometimes the best man for the job is a woman. You were there because you were the best person for the job. Serving as mission control on our journey is Lynn Schur, journalist, broadcaster, and author who spent more than 30 years at ABC News. Her many recognitions for excellence include Emmy, Gracie, and George Foster Peabody Awards, as well as two American Women in Radio and Television Commendation Awards. She covered NASA's space shuttle program from its launch in 1981 through the Challenger explosion in 1986, and is the only journalist to cover, full-time, both Sally Ride and Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro the first woman to run for vice president of the United States. Lynchur's book is titled Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. It includes unique insights from her friendship with the astronaut, as well as exclusives from Dr. Ride's family, partner, and countless friends and colleagues. You can enjoy more from our guest at Lynchur on Twitter, that's S-H-E-R-R, or Facebook.com slash Sally Ride bio. Okay, now that we've fueled our boosters and done our pre-flight checks, let's start the countdown and meet Sally Ride, America's first woman in space. Challenger Houston, your first stage performance was nominal. That was Capcom Roy Bridges advising first stage performance. Onboard guidance is converging now as program. Challenger is now steering for a precise window in space for main engine shutdown. I'm at Simon & Schuster's headquarters on 6th Avenue. Honored to be sitting across from veteran journalist Lynn Schur. We are here to chat about her latest book, Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. 
Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. I'm delighted to be here, Dean. Thanks. I had to do that twice because I feel I shouldn't be on this side of the question mark, but <laughs> I appreciate you sitting on the other side of it, especially about such an exciting subject, somebody who really you get to know through your book, warts and all. You did not check your journalist credentials here at the door, even though you knew her. I didn't. And that was one of the things I thought long and hard about when I started to work on the book, because I, I knew Sally so well. We had been friends for a very long time. And I wanted to do a real portrait of her that was journalistically as well as personally sound. So, yeah, I think there are probably a few things in there that she wouldn't be thrilled that were mentioned, but there you are. She had those walls about her. You had a great description in there where you talked about the heat shields on the shuttle, the heat tiles, and you said she didn't have those from the glare of the public spotlight and from all the people that were after her. And the, you know, she even attracts a couple of stalkers, which I thought, especially in the 80s with what had happened with Hinckley mm -hmm. and shooting Reagan and Jodie Foster, and it must have been particularly scary because she's a, such a small woman, too. That would have been... she, Yeah, she was quite tiny and... She really was freaked by too much public attention, by people always wanting to get a piece of her. You know, in New York City, it's funny, when you walk down the street in New York, there's so many celebrities in this city that people see somebody and they kind of give a wave or give a wink and let them go by. But in a lot of other places in the world, it doesn't happen. And Sally was very unhappy with people reaching out and not only emotionally wanting a piece of her, but wanting to touch her. And people see our space heroes as something out of a comic book, I think, sometimes. And they just wanted to know who she was, and she was just a real person after all. But yeah, she didn't like all the attention. Don't get me wrong. She loved being the first American woman in space. She liked a lot of what went with that. She didn't love it all, however. Yeah, especially when you're a small person. You can very easily, people will hug you. You talk about one of the times, yeah. I believe, she comes back from the second mission, is it? And the commander grabs her, hugs her, lifts her off the ground. And of course, that's a joyous moment. But you don't want strangers hugging you. When no, you're you small, don't. Or moving and you around or no. pushing you. And one of the times, right after she flew the first time, when she really was the most famous person on the planet for her 15 minutes, she came to New York and the city of New York was giving the keys to the city to the entire crew. And the city of New York provided a bodyguard for Sally. And she was staying at my apartment and she just dismissed the bodyguard when she got to my house. She said, thank you. I appreciate you know, somebody from the police department. So my husband, who was a big guy, wound up being her bodyguard when we went to dinner and when we went to a, an event and he kind of blocked around her so that nobody could get too close. But she didn't want to make a fuss about it, but she wanted to be protected from people that she didn't think they were beneath her. She just didn't know how to handle it. And she wasn't that sort of backslabbing person. This is why we never had a president, Sally Ride, because there was no way she was going to be in the limelight any more than she had to be. She never in 100 years would have run for office. Right. And that's one of the important things in her life and her legacy that you read in the book is inspiring young women in particular. And if you're listening to this and you're a little five foot five girl and you look at the space shuttle or you look up at the space station through your telescope now, you can see it. There's permanent humans floating around us all the time. You can do it because she paid that way and she never let that stop her. She never let her size stop her. And I don't think she thought of herself as being small. In fact, 
one of the only times it came up was when, um, after she had died, when I was working on the book, I went out to La Jolla, San Diego, California, to talk to the folks at Sally Ride Science. And one of the young men who worked on, it was either EarthCam or MoonCam, where students could take pictures of the Earth or of the Moon, thanks to satellites that were up there, and she had arranged a way for them to do this through their classrooms. And I said to one of the guys, a big, burly guy, I said, what was it about Sally that you so enjoyed? And he said, you know, the amazing thing was you didn't realize until after she walked away how little she was. You spent time with her, and she felt like this huge presence when, in fact, she was five, five and a half, which is not miniature, but it ain't big. Well, as somebody who listeners by now know, I have an animal science degree. I love animals. was a vet tech for a long time. This may not sound particularly flattering, but it's sort of like small dogs. People will say he doesn't know that he's small. They they go and attack a lion if you try to attack their person or or come near them in a wrong way. They, They just have that presence about them. So it doesn't seem that ever held her back. You mentioned there about having her at your apartment. There have been about 110 billion human beings that have walked the earth, give or take, since the dawn of our species, yet only about 550 of us have traveled into space. You've met many impressive figures, obviously, during the course of your career, but I wonder, were there ever moments when you saw Sally Ride sitting on your living room, you describe her, shoes off, feet up, eating a slice of pizza, and you still felt starstruck? I was never starstruck by the fact that I had an astronaut in my apartment. What did strike me constantly, being around Sally and her then-husband, Steve Holy, another brilliant astronaut, was how much they knew about so many things. These two individuals in particular, and Sally especially, was not just a wonky astrophysicist, if it's fair to call an astrophysicist a wonk, She knew the science. She knew the rocket science. She knew how to launch and land the shuttle. She knew what to do when she got on orbit. She knew how to launch a satellite. But she could also talk about Shakespeare. She could also solve crossword puzzles with me. She could also giggle over a movie we had seen. She was a totally well-rounded human being. And that's what struck me, was that you could do so many things in... She could do so many things in this world and out of this world that put them all together, any one of them would have been a career for somebody. I'll tell you the other thing that struck me so much about Sally that I was in awe of was she had a great instinct for getting to the bottom of a problem. She understood how things worked. When 9-11 happened, I was assigned at ABC by the time I got to the office. I was asked to be in the newsroom. I was meant to coordinate information about the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And I called everybody I knew, and I was just pulling stuff together. Nobody knew much of anything at that point. One of the people I talked to that day was Sally, just because I thought she might have some insight. First thing she said before this had gotten out, first thing she said to me was, I want to know more about how the passengers on that plane behaved. I want to know more about the conversations in that plane before it went down. She understood instinctively that it had to have been a passenger revolt that happened in that plane. And that's just the kind of person she was. I like that she has that scientific attitude towards so many things where she wants to know how they work. 
Yeah. And she wants to know physics, obviously, so she studies it. And then she's involved in the two investigations when the shuttles have accidents and explode. And I thought that is so much a person you need. We lost out that she never wanted to be the NASA administrator. Right. And probably lost out that she never wanted to be president. But she had that ability to look at it and say, okay, you're behind a desk and you say, I'm going to turn on my computer. I just want it to work. Well, a programmer will tell you it's not going to work because this. And you say, well, I just want to hit it with a rock and (laughs) make it go, you know, or a car. You just want to get in. And we started to look at the shuttle a little bit as just what you get in. And you flip the switch and it goes and it it became routine. And it's not routine. It's She says afterwards, she realized you're sitting on this Roman candle, you call it in the book, and it's just exploding gas. And you're sitting there in a chair and hoping that it goes okay. Well, don't forget, she flew on both of her missions under a commander who understood the shuttle systems probably better than anybody on the planet at that point. Bob Griffin knew the shuttle inside and out, had been there all during the development and the building of it, and he's the guy that she was working with. Sally also understood something else, which I know is an engineering thing, but I never quite got it until she explained it to me, and she explained a lot of things to me. And that was talking about the Challenger and the Columbia explosions, accidents on reentry, one on reentry and one on launch. Sally explained to me that the biggest problem was whatever you figured out, you had to recreate the problem in order to say this was the problem. In other words, if you came up with a theory, it wasn't enough to have a theory. You had to recreate the problem, show some failure in the system, which would then indicate, oh, that's what it certainly could have been, and maybe that's what it was. And this whole very painstaking, one teeny step at a time, which is certainly the scientific method. This was not depending on somebody having a eureka moment. This was going through all the steps, all the pieces of paper, all the interviews, everything that you needed. And that's something she could do really well. thing about the O-rings, that was something that she demonstrates it or she finds it. Somebody tells her she makes sure that the press knows even before the report. And that was the thing that I was thinking about as an example, because the temperature is too low, the O-ring is going to shrink. But if you're not a science-minded person and you just see the shuttle going up, you just say, well, launch it. But see, that was also quintessential Sally, because she understood the problem pretty early on. She also understood that when you have a guy like Richard Feynman there, who was the brilliant physicist who was on the shuttle, the Challenger Investigation Board, that maybe he could explain it better to people and maybe it would be better coming from him than coming from her. She was never a grandstander. So manipulating the information in a way that it was Feynman who dropped the piece of rubber a ring into the glass with ice while we were all sitting there, the press was there, the cameras were rolling, was quite brilliant and very much the way Sally liked to operate. She didn't need to take credit for everything she knew. Dr. Red makes those two shuttle flights that you talked about, and something that we never would have known watching you on 2020, unless you talked about it and I missed it, but uh, she even recommends you to be the first journalist in space. This is before the Challenger. When you went through the vetting process, and when you look at space now, what things jump out at you and you say that that is Sally Rod's legacy? Well, there's no question that by the time NASA got around to wanting to have a journalist in space competition and the possibility of a reporter up there, 
It would never have happened without the first six women, of whom Sally, of course, was one from that class in 1978. I think all the women were extremely important to make that happen. And I think that it was quite brilliant of NASA, which came to the idea of affirmative action, if you will, of um, opening the doors of equal rights a little bit late for my money, but nonetheless, they did it. And when they did it, they did it right. So by bringing in six women rather than just one woman, they gave it a lot more credibility. So by the time I was interviewed for the Journalist in Space competition, the presence of all those women, including Sally and including Sally who had flown, it was a given. And they had smoothed out all the rough spots. And there was no question that a female journalist and a male journalist were going to be included exactly on the same terms. So I, of course, thoroughly believe I would have won the competition. I was 100% convinced. There were were only 30 of us left at the end. 30, and it was only a semifinal. That's as far as it got before NASA ended the program and the possibility. But I was 100% convinced I was going to go. As I told my husband, I like to drive fast, and I had a daring streak in me, and therefore, of course, I should go. Isn't that ridiculous? But (laughs) nonetheless, I was sure I was going to go. She had this, what do you call it, a joy of life. I said to you when we talked before that I've watched a few videos of you doing interviews about it and doing speeches on the book. And your speeches, you've given some parts of it, told some stories a bunch of times. And yet every time you start to talk about her, you not only smile, but you light up. That's a great friend to have. And I felt after I read this book, I read a lot of books, obviously, but I picked this one up and I got to know her as you knew her. And even though it is a warts and all biography and she has this wall up around her, she has this Norwegian sort of stoicism, even when she doesn't like something, what's the word she uses? Interesting. Yeah. And that's a kind of a NASA word. It's an astronaut word. Okay. Yeah. But it seemed to fit her well because she fits right into that part of the NASA culture, although she does go with what's right and the astronauts that have died on the mission. She doesn't circle the wagons around NASA in the sense of protect the things that they're doing wrong. She goes at it because she wants NASA to be the best it can be, so she's willing to criticize it. She was willing to criticize it for one reason, to make it better. She didn't want to do gratuitous criticism. She didn't want to pile on against NASA. She wanted the agency, she believed in the space agency, to do better so that they could get on with their work. It was that simple. Also, the engineer in her saw a problem and wanted to A, understand it, and B, fix it. You know, there's a it's a mindset that says, this is what's possible. Let's do what's possible. And then let's reach for the impossible a little bit also. But yeah, she wanted to fix it. She cared very much about human space flight. She cared about robotic space flight. She cared about NASA. She cared about the globalization of space. She wanted us to be in space at some level, no matter how it was going to happen. So she was there to get it fixed, yes. But that didn't mean she wouldn't criticize NASA when it was time to criticize them. Usually when I interview authors, they've written a bio on some long dead historical figure or somebody <laughs> that they, they could never possibly I wish I, I wish it had been a long dead. It would have been a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, it must have been a particular challenge because yeah. You're talking about how an engineer looks at things. Well, a journalist looks at things different, too, or are supposed to, and kick all the tires and not put away something. But also, this is a friend of yours. And so you're reading a diary. You're talking to people about her. 
as if she's in the room. And of course, she's no longer with us. So how was that challenge to you? How did it impact your research? It made it twice as hard, I would have to say. You know, the last biography of a famous woman I had done was of Susan B. Anthony, who isn't around to um, say, "Uh, Lynn, you got that wrong or you got that right. So I had not only my memories of Sally and my friendship with her to deal with, I had her mother who's still alive. I've got her sister. I've got her partner. I've got all these people at NASA who worked with her and spent a lot more time with her in many occasions than I did. So I was very wary. I will say I'm so gratified that there literally has not been one response from somebody afterwards that said, wow, you really got that wrong. I think I got her right, and I think I knew her well enough to get it right. But it is a challenge to write about somebody to whom you are close and somebody that a lot of living people knew awfully well. So I just was careful. I mean, I did more than 200 interviews for the book. Wow. I transcribed every single one myself. I chose not to hire an outside transcription service because I knew a lot of the material was very sensitive, particularly talking about Sally and her decisions about her sexuality and talking about some NASA stuff that had not been out before. So I did every single bit of it myself. I went back over tapes many times. I double-checked quotes with people. Nobody asked to have a quote change. So I feel pretty good about that. Especially because when you read the book, you talk about this compartmentalization that she had. It's the three blind men that are feeling an elephant. They all think it's something different. And you had Susan Oki talk about it. She co-authored a children's book with. She sees a side of her there, this uh, flare of temper she feels that she's betrayed her trust a little bit by doing her job as we see it. But then somebody else could easily have come to that if you hadn't handled that just right and said she never lost her temper. with. Well, me. I will tell you something else. Susan Oki, who's a wonderful former journalist, was at the Washington Post and writes poetry and does many, many things and was Sally's very close friend from prep school. And I called up Susan and she heard I was working on the book. And I said I wanted to interview her, and I said we could do it by phone or we could do it in person. And she said, well, I think in person would be better. And so she I went... just made a face, everybody. <laughs> I just made a like face. Nervous. Uh-oh. Like, uh-oh. And What's so it? I went down to Washington, and Susan lives in the Washington area. And I went over there, and it was a very interesting, I'd say, two hours, two and a half hours that we just sat and talked. I had met Susan before with Sally years ago. We were not particularly close friends. I barely knew her. And finally, towards the end of our conversation, and and I'm not yet interviewing her, we're just kind of figuring it out. And finally, she said, well, fine, I'll be happy to do an interview or a series of interviews with you. She said, I needed to take your measure first. She needed to understand where I was coming from. And she knew who I was. She knew I was a friend of Sally. She knew I was a reporter. She knew I was a TV journalist. But she wanted to get a feel in person for how I was going to treat the memory of her close friend. And I think the combination of our friendship and my journalism is what made the difference with her. But I had to do that with a lot of Sally's old friends, most of whom I had not met, her girlhood friends, her tennis friends, because they wanted to be sure that Sally's legacy was safe with me. And it was fine if I was going to tell secrets. It was fine if I was going to tell stories, but they wanted to be sure it was handled in the right way. And that to me was an interesting lesson. You don't get that 
when you write a biography of someone who's been dead for 150 years. <laughs> yeah, you don't find anyone who marched with Susan B. Anthony, I guess, <laughs> and went to prison. Right, or even a great, great, great who's going to say to me, well, I want to be sure you're handling her legacy. It doesn't work that way. Yeah. It's with a living, a recently living person. And it shows the love for her, too, people have. I think still. so. It's not just reverence. It's not just, well, she's the first woman in space. It's a personal connection she made. With first American woman. First space. American woman, sorry. And that's a great passage in the book, too, that I'll just tease about her meeting the Soviet woman. Yeah, Svetlana. It was Svetlana, yeah. And I like when they ask her, what experiments did they, did they do on you when you were up there? And she said nothing. And yeah. it, was just, it was just a great moment. And that was great risk to her. This is the height of the Cold War. It's after the Soviets have shot down that airliner, the Korean Airlines flight. So this takes some real guts. But she didn't like silly rules, you say again and again in the book and give examples of. So. Right. She was very good about towing the line. She was very good about being a team player. And obeying her commander and obeying the rules, unless she thought they were dumb. And if she thought the rules were dumb, then she would break them in a non-threatening way. So going to meet with Svetlana Savitskaya and some other Soviet cosmonauts that particular night that you're describing in Budapest was very gutsy of her. And she got away with it. And the story is told for the first time in my book. So. I'm not going to say any more about it. I'm going to wait until <laughs> we're off the air and I'm going to say a couple more thoughts on it. So people will... Just have to buy the book, and I don't always just want to negatively plug it, but I felt like this had so much in it, really packed full of things. I guess people say Forrest Gump, which isn't, again, particularly flattering, but, I mean, she was a person at the top of the government, the top of the country, an icon, and so many things that she saw, people that she meets, and she's in space. I mean, it's incredible. And she worked hard. Don't underestimate. She She worked very hard to get there. You know, it wasn't just a question of being there. It wasn't just a question of right moment, right time, right person. She was lucky about the timing that the opportunity was available, but she worked her tail off to get every single thing she got out of it. And for that, we have to be very much in awe. Anybody who's taken physics, I'm sure, can <laughs> even a little bit can say, wow. Astrophysics. Yeah, astrophysics. Well, I'm just saying for us. I know, us, I'm just saying. Oh, I she see. took it the next level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You talk about her love of tennis, a little too small probably to go pro, but you talk about her friendship with Billie Jean King, right. who she plays against at one point. Talk about that a little bit. Sally started playing tennis. Her mom thought it would be a good thing for her to learn when she was a girl, and she was a very gifted athlete, and she really took to it immediately. And she wound up being in the junior tennis circuit. Of course, Southern California, this is a big deal out there. Her dad was the one who sort of drove her to all the games. And then she wound up flying around the country and doing a lot of that. And she was quite good and considered turning pro, wasn't sure, and meets Billie Jean King, who by then was a huge star already. And she winds up playing in an exhibition game with Billie. And Sally was over the moon about this. She writes home, so, and, to, speak. so to speak. She just loved it. And had a conversation with Billie Jean. And Billie Jean, it's not true, Billie Jean says, that I said to her, you ought to turn pro, which is the way the Ride family history story goes. But she doesn't actually remember. But what Billie Jean thinks that she, Billie Jean, probably said to Sally was, you're very good, you're terrific. If you think you want to turn pro, go for it. Because if you don't, you'll always be mad at yourself. And if you think you've got it, you should go for it. And you're obviously really good. So, um, these are my words, not Billie Jean King's words. But 
whatever she said at that moment encouraged Sally to keep at it until Sally did make an effort and dropped out of college for a couple of months in order to try, looked around her and realized she wasn't going to be the best of the best. And she didn't want to do something where she wasn't at the very top of her the heap. And so she goes back to college and she picks up her astrophysics and then she goes there. Now she's at Stanford and now she gets her degree and her master's and her PhD and then is all set to go and be an academic in the astrophysics world. And then she sees this article that NASA's looking for astronauts who happen to be female. So off she goes. Example of why you should always read your student newspaper. That was her line, yeah. (laughs) I guess the lesson is read your student newspaper. (laughs) Just picked up the front page. On such things, uh, fate turns. In this case, the whole world turns. Right. right? When I worked in cable news, Senator John Glenn returned to space on the shuttle. It was such a wonderful break from the news. In fact, when she is diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, she and her partner Tam stop watching news. It's one of the things that, that they do just because of the focus on the negative so much of the time. But space is this break from that, even a break from hard news, even a break from the stories that make you think. It's it's an inspiration to us and one that's important to me in my view of things, having grown up like Sally watching Star Trek and looking at the stars. But budgets are concrete things and inspiration is not, it's kind of ephemeral. But what did she say to the mindset that opposes space exploration as a waste of dollars and thinks we could better spend them here? She thought it was a very limited way of thinking. She pointed out, as everyone I've ever known who's a space advocate points out, that the NASA budget is such a teeny tiny fraction of the national budget that it's laughable to think about cutting it. And she also pointed out that we have to, all of us as a species, have to have something beyond ourselves to reach for. The little line that she would write when she signed the children's science books that she wrote was reach for the stars. I was told her dad gave her that line. And it was something that fit into her way of thinking, which is you've got to reach beyond yourself. It may not have been the most eloquent thing she ever wrote or ever said, and she had eloquence in her, but she believed very strongly that you have to, your reach has to exceed your grasp that you've got to see what's out there. And I know she felt that way about space. She is the young woman getting older who would, in her 50s, talk to groups of children, and she would look around the room and she would say, one of you, one of you is of the generation, you're going to go to Mars. And then she would pause and she would say, wish it would have been me. And I wish it would have been Sally too. But She understood that it was time to pass the baton, and she hoped and wanted for them to be yearning to do that. She didn't necessarily want to raise a million new little astronauts. She wanted people to care about getting into space in any way because she thought we belonged there. And only 32, by the way, when she went. Is that right? Not only the first American woman, she was the youngest American. She remains the youngest American astronaut to fly. Wow. Yeah. We've sent a lot up since, so it says something. Yeah. I'm speaking with author and veteran journalist Lynn Schur about her book, Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. Remember to follow her at Lynn Schur on Twitter or like Facebook.com slash Sally Ride bio. School Library Journal writes of the audiobook, quote, 
Published originally for the adult market, this audiobook will light a spark in girls who do not yet know that the sky is literally their limit. Ride spent so much of her post-NASA years encouraging young women to study math and science, unquote. Inspiring young women, as that says, that's something that was a lifelong passion. She is constantly asked that question I always find intrusive about, do you have children? Do you want to have children? All of these things. And she doesn't, and yet children are passion for her. And to find her in a way that the handful of years she spent at NASA didn't, but there was something else that, as a journalist, you note in your book, and that is her way of handling the press. And the reason I smashed those two things together is with Twitter and Facebook and smartphone cameras everywhere, what can young people learn from Sally Ride's ability not to do the astrophysics, not to study, not to go into space, but to focus and compartmentalize and to understand that the press is not always going to be your friend if you do something or say something that's bad. It's very satisfying maybe in the moment to do it, but she, the way she answered the question, she would never give more than she was asked. She was always focused. I think the big lesson, let, let me start with, I'm so happy that social media did not exist when I was covering the space program <laughs> because there were so many little moments I had with Sally and with Sally and Steve and with other astronauts that that I wouldn't have enjoyed if I had felt it was my obligation to put them all out on Twitter and to put them all up on Facebook every 20 seconds. You know, mm -hmm. there was kind of a nice thing about having some downtime. Had there ever been anything that impinged at all on my coverage of the space program, I would have reported it and did on occasion. But the private times were just that. They were a lot of fun. I think the big lesson from Sally, I think there are two of them. And one of them is her extraordinary focus. Her college roommate told me that Sally could study through a whistling tea kettle. And that's a real art, to be able to get yourself so focused on what you're working on. And then, by the same token, she could switch that off in a blink and then be there and go and have fun. And I think that ability, I think compartmentalization can be very helpful for anybody. And I think we all have moments when you don't want to get up, you don't want to go to school, you'd rather work on something you're doing at home. And her ability to sort of get to school, get it done, and then have fun afterwards was a big deal. The other piece of it that I think is terribly important is to have a sense of humor and to not take yourself terribly seriously. To be serious about what you do, to be committed to what you do, but when that reporter from Time Magazine said to Sally Ride, who was about to be the first American woman in space, Dr. Ride, how do you handle it when something goes wrong in the simulator? Do you weep? Now, I, Lynn Scher, would have clawed the guy's eyes out right then and there. <laughs> Sally laughs, makes a joke of it, turns to the pilot of her crew, Rick Houck, sitting next to her and says, why doesn't anyone ever ask Rick these questions? With a huge grin on her face, totally defuses the bomb. So the lesson is concentrate when you can and need to, pull back when you don't, and mostly keep a sense of humor. There are so many terrible things that are going to happen to us in our lifetimes that you've got to be able to figure out which ones are worth getting really upset about. 
well, you did study Greek, right? The classics. So I'll say, <laughs> particularly, you should know being Greek, that's that's probably not going to happen with me. But I will, I will try. I will try to use Sally Ride as my example. You know, I call <laughs> I call the things I learned from her flying lessons because I think she's taught us all how to fly high without ever leaving Earth, and this ability that she had to pivot from one thing to another is, to me, one of the most important lessons I've learned from her. That. Things can go terribly wrong or a task can be accomplished. You're done with it. Move on. Don't agonize. Don't worry about it. And you're right. Euripides never would have been able to handle that. (laughs) And Greek tragedy, as we know and love it, wouldn't exist if this were the case. But boy, does it help in living your life. Well, and the example there of the reporter, it is something she wouldn't have done from the salary ride I've learned from your book because... I watched the video. People can see it, actually, at your History in Five video from the good folks here at Simon & Schuster. And you can you s- hear this yes. ridiculous reporter from Time Magazine, as a man, ask yeah. that question. I watched it for her reaction. But when I listened to him asking, I said, I don't know if he's nervous. I don't know if he just, oh, I've got my time to talk, so I want to say everything I can. But he adds that little bit in at the end, which is probably the part that was in his heart that he was wondering, but he didn't want to ask it that way or something, or he just made a really big, silly flub, not realizing he kind of soaked up just this idea that women weren't going to be astronauts. You had to have the buzz cut and be the you know fly boy, and nobody's going to put you on that poster with the three astronauts. Well, I think maybe there was something else. I totally forget who it really was, but I think... for that. I yeah, think. exactly. <laughs> I think he was going, he was dealing with two things. He was, number one, dealing with the biggest stereotype in the world, which is women are weak and can't handle pressure and therefore break down in tears whenever anything goes wrong. How silly. That's number one. And number two, he was going for a quote, which is not all that different from what we see today with some of our bad reporters, that when they interview somebody, they're not always going for the truth and they're not always going for information. They're going for a quote that's going to make them, the reporter, look good. And I think this Time Magazine reporter thought, oh, I'll get this great quote about how she cries. Please. Yeah. He thought he could <laughs> maybe shake her and get her off script a little bit, yeah. as you say. But she, she just deals with it so well. And I believe you said there's a groan in the press room. At the oh, total groan. Yeah. We all just went, oh. <laughs> you didn't just do that. Yeah. Dr. Ride wrote six children's books with her partner, Tam O'Shaughnessy. And you kick off Sally Ride speaking with some of the 300 kids worldwide who've used the moon cam led by Sally Ride Science. How can we carry Dr. Ride's passion for instilling that hunger for learning in children and maybe rekindle it in ourselves? I think the important thing in school is for teachers to keep after little girls who show an interest in science, who show a passion for wanting to do some of this. Sally and Tam did a lot of research, and they discovered that, this will not surprise most people, little boys and little girls start out in life having the same interest and curiosity about science and about cool things. And then somehow around third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade, it kind of gets beaten out of the little girls. And people say things to the little girls like, why is such a cute little thing like you studying such a hard subject? Or really, you want to study math? You don't want to study English or history. These are very subtle things or not so subtle. And I think in terms of the leadership that our children get in school and elsewhere and certainly at home, 
to encourage them to do, boys or girls, what they want to do and not to make them fit into some silly stereotype that perhaps another generation grew up with. More importantly, I think we need to keep science in the forefront of our daily discourse in this country. It falls away too often. We need to keep the scientific method as a very important way to teach our children. We need to keep rational thinking and sane thinking. And I think all of these things should be part of our lives, as opposed to something special where you only think about it when you go into the lab, or you only think about it when you watch the launch of a rocket ship. These things all ought to be incorporated into our lives. And I think Sally felt that very strongly. And she wanted it to be fun for them. And that's why one of the reasons that she started Sally Ride Science. She wanted them to understand the science, and she wanted science to be as much fun as kicking a soccer ball or going to arts and crafts class or studying Shakespeare. Talk a little bit about the moon camp. That was a fantastic way to start the book. Mooncam was a spectacular project that was a combination of the woman who was the principal investigator of getting NASA to agree, and they had a program, two satellites that orbited the moon. They were studying, if I'm not mistaken, the lunar gravity. And she very wisely went to Sally, and she said, so I've got these two satellites that are going to be up there going over around the moon. What can you think of that we can do that would be good for kids that would help further this project that I'm working on. And Sally came up with Moon Camp. The idea was they put cameras on these two satellites. Then they linked it up through NASA, and then it went through Sally's group at UCSD, University of California, San Diego, and they had a kind of mission control. And then there were links to school rooms around the country so that in your classroom, you could sit there and dial up from the satellite a picture that you wanted You learned the coordinates and you went if you wanted to look at the plane of whatever or the valley of whatever, and you could order it up and it could be delivered the next day to you, actual print, so that you could study the moon and you could study the lunar surface. And then you could take this picture and take it home and put it on your refrigerator as if you'd been on a trip to the Grand Canyon. So what was so extraordinary was, as you say, number one, it was kids seeing close-ups of the moon for the first time. It was kids seeing close-ups of the moon for the first time that they had commanded, and it was learning things and then taking it home and displaying it on the refrigerator door. There was one story where a little kid took her picture home, and the parent said to the teacher, my daughter says she's got a picture of the moon. That can't be, can it? And the teacher (laughs) said, yep, it's exactly what it is. So this is generational, and we have to provide these wonderful tools for our children to keep them interested and having fun while they're learning. Well, I always found science fun. That's why I studied it. But I could see people that don't. And I remember when Sally Ride had, well, the Billy Joel song came out. And I thought to myself, well, she's not possibly going to mention this in the book. Once I got to know her and said her fun side and everything. And I remember at the time somebody was saying, well, isn't she the one that was on the Challenger? And I said, no, she was the first American woman to go in space. And why do you know so much about Sally Ride? Why did you read? I was like, well, maybe I should have known then because I was reading Newsweek and Time and not reading, you know, Journey of the <laughs> Journal of the American Veterinary Association where I should be. But um, I said, but your path was set. Yeah. Dean. I was like, because it's science. It's fun. It's passion. Yeah. She was passionate about it. She wasn't just a person who went up there as a token. She was involved with the mission. She's running that Canadian yeah. built yeah. shuttle arm. And, to- and, and you mentioned the Billy Joel song. 
And Billy Joel doesn't refer to her as anything but Sally Ride. She's part of the pop culture. And all he has to do is mention her name, which rhymes with heavy metal suicide. So, you know, (laughs) it was an interesting way to do it. I still love listening to the song just so that I can hear Sally's name. (laughs) No one will hear it the same way again. And I thought, well, she comes after Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. And you usually say that in your appearances and you get a laugh. And I thought to myself, well, she could have come after the space monkey. And then I thought, wait, she did come after the space monkey (laughs) in a manner manner of speaking. But yeah, you said she uh, She came after after a space monkey and a couple of spiders, which until she flew were the only (laughs) females that had been in space in America. Dr. Ride passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2012, and there was that last line in her obituary that noted her relationship with Tam that we were just speaking about, her co-author with those children's books. I left the question until a little later in the interview because one line in a person's bio and somebody so private, I, I kind of kept moving it down because she wanted her personal life to remain private. Even when she was married, you said there were no little, you know, oh, at home with the astronauts floating around in never, her living room. Never, never. She, she didn't want that. So I wanted to ask, as you go and speak about the book, do you find that readers of Sally Ride focus too much on that aspect of her life, not enough, or is the balance just about right? I think the balance is actually just about right because most of the book, as you well know, is about Sally as a human being. Her life in space is a lot of it, her life with tennis, the fun times, the magic moments. And I deal with her relationship with Tam and with another woman and with her husband in various points coming and going. I think it's not, I know it's not what Sally wanted to be known for. Her sexuality was totally private. She chose to keep it private. She wanted very much to know that her legacy as the first American woman in space would open doors for other women all over the world. She also craved a certain amount of privacy. And I think, and I have to say I think, because I never discussed this with Sally while she was alive, and it turns out nobody discussed this with Sally while she was alive. She just didn't talk about it. But I think that she understood that if she came out as a gay woman, even in 2009 or 10 or 11 before she died, that that would have been all anybody ever talked about. She didn't want to be the poster child for the LGBT world. She supported the rights, obviously, of everybody to do anything they wanted to do. But this wasn't where she wanted to spend her time. She was busy crashing through glass ceilings in a lot of other places. And I think she just chose her battles the way she wanted to choose them. And that's the way I wanted to remember her as well. But that whole story is there. And it's a sad story at some levels, although I don't think Sally was ever sad about it. I'm sad about the fact that I was never able to enjoy her with her partner, Tam, while she was alive. I'm sad about the fact that she couldn't just be what she wanted to be without having to think about that. But that's the way our society has been, unfortunately, even to its heroes. There's a lot of pressure already to be the first woman. And she just wanted to get things done, it seems to me. She just didn't want to have anything distracted, even being NASA administrator. 
you say in the book that someone called her about a rumor that Ross Perot was going to ask her to be his vice, vice president, president. <laughs> you know, and you had a front row seat for her and for Geraldine Ferraro. You are the only journalist to full time cover both of them. So I'm sure you have a, a million stories. Maybe the next book will be Geraldine Ferraro, although you said you didn't want to do people who are still alive. So yeah, well, not alive. or people recently died. Yeah. yeah. Jerry did her own book and um, there've been a couple of biographies of her, another great woman. And she and Sally became friends and supported each other, which was great. So, no, I don't need to do Ferraro, although I loved covering the campaign. It was historic. It was exciting back in uh, 1984. But, um, but you don't see many grade school reporters covering presidential campaigns, but you must have been. <laughs> three. I was three. Thank you, Dean. <laughs> I was like, please laugh so they don't think you're clawing my eyes out. Girl. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> When you interviewed Sally Ride before her first flight in 83, I want to get to one quote that she said to you as we wrap up. She said, I do feel there's added pressure on me not to mess up. She had a pretty big economy of words, so not to do great, not to do just as well. And it reminded me of Theodore Roosevelt Jr.'s challenge, his father, of course, larger than life, and his sister, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, said Ted had it so hard because he couldn't cross the street without someone saying his father would have done it better. And even if Ted did cross the street just right, they'd say, see, see, he did it just as old TR would have done it. So there was never really a chance for him to be his own man. Although, of course, the highest ranking soldier to go ashore on D-Day, and he did have a great military career. But my question that we haven't touched on is, how was she so conscious of somebody who didn't have any PR training or anything of not causing a PR flap? How? She had great instincts, and she went with them most of the time. And as you say, she was had great economy of speech. And when she said to me in that interview right before she flew, yes, I do feel pressure not to mess up, she meant she didn't want to mess up for her mission. She wanted the mission to go well. She didn't want to mess up for NASA. She believed in NASA. She didn't want to mess up for the future of human spaceflight, which she believed in. Mostly she didn't want to mess up for other women because she understood fully that as the first female anything, every eye is on you. And that if she had, in her terms, messed up while she was on orbit, people would have said, you can't send women in space. Look what they do. Whereas if a guy messed up, it would have been, oh, too bad. It must have been the equipment or something. She had a real understanding of how the world works. And I think it goes back to the fact that she was this brilliant combination of scientist, engineer, and humanitarian. She sort of knew how to put it all together. And I think she left us such a valuable legacy in terms of you can lead your life, do what you want, have fun doing what you want, and you can still solve problems, and you can occasionally be at odds with the people that you like, but in the end, it's all going to be right because you've done what you care about. You followed your own path, which is what she did. Okay, you've given generously of your time today. But before we attempt re-entry, which is probably my last space pun, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> one final question on a personal note. In Sally Ride, you mentioned that she carried some small personal items for you and your husband into space when she went. Who came up with the idea? Was it you or, and this is a very cool phrase, your friend, the astronaut? It was all Sally. When astronauts fly, they have a small personal kit in which they can take up mementos for friends, family, whatever. 
the things that fly have to be passed by NASA. In other words, it can't be something that's combustible. It can't be huge. And Sally said to us right before her second flight, wasn't right before, it must have been a couple months because they have to get the stuff in early. I'd like to fly something for you. And normally it's a coin, it's somebody's diamond ring, whatever. So she suggested, and I took her up on this, I have a passion for giraffes. And so I have a little, tiny, beautiful sterling silver giraffe. It's about two inches high. And she flew the giraffe for me. And Larry, my husband, uh, had a medal that was being struck for something he was doing. You you can't do anything commercial with this. It has to be strictly personal. But he wanted copies of it. And she she took this little medal, which commemorated the flight. And when I was doing my research and I got all the flight manifests and all the stuff for that flight, sure enough, there in the flight manifest flew two personal items, one for Lynn Scherer, one for Larry Overton. So this was all her idea, as, by the way, was it her idea to write the recommendation for me for the journalist and space competition. She was very generous to her friends and a very loyal friend. And she said to me, I'll write you a recommendation for that if you want. And she did. So she was very giving. She was very concerned about people she cared about. And then, of course, then she could go off and not give you a call for three years because she was busy working on something else. But that was Sally. Compartments. There you go. Well, Lynn Scher, author of Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. Thank you for sitting down with me today. You're an expert on being on the other side of the question mark, as I said. So I hope I did you and Dr. Sally Ride justice. I hope people will blast off with you in the book. There's another space pun because you get to read that letter that she wrote. You really get to know this American hero. She was the most famous person on the planet, as you said, for a time. And you may think you know her, but she's much more than just the name that we all know. So thank you so much for writing the book. I'm really glad you shared it with me. And best of luck in sharing the story of this legendary astronaut. Thanks to you, Dean. And I hope whoever reads the book enjoys reading it as much as I love knowing Sally and that it means something to you as well. Disembarking now. All five crewmen doing a walk around inspection of Challenger. All five crew members. Again, the book is Sally Ride, America's First Woman in Space. My thanks to Simon and Schuster for the use of their studio and to Lynn Schur for joining me so we could meet this astronaut, astrophysicist, tennis player, children's book author, and genuine American legend, all in one five-foot, five-and-a-half-inch package. Check out Lynn Schur on Twitter, that's S-H-E-R-R, or toss a like to facebook.com slash sallyridebio. You can find the link to purchase your copy of the book at historyauthor.com. And remember, let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That wraps up our Out of This World installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, and next Monday's all-new interview. And remember, if you subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together... Thanks for spending some time with us, and keep reaching 
for the stars. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. When there is a funny, a glitch, or whatever, uh, how did you respond? How do you take it as a human being? Do you... Do you weep? Do you, um, what do you do? Why doesn't anybody ask Rick those questions? <laughs> <laughs>